So our first reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, reading from verses 1 to 12. When he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Read in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloth, on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and so are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Um, I'd like to start my sermon this morning by setting out clearly a couple of things I don't believe before coming on to some things that I, I think I do believe. Firstly, I do not believe that sin causes disability. Now, some of you have heard me speak previously about my wonderful grandfather. He was a powerful influence on me when I was growing up. And in many, many ways, he modelled the kind of human being that I would aspire to be. He was also a convinced atheist. The thing is, he had been brought up as a Christian scientist. And I don't know if you've come across the Christian science movement. 
As with many religious groups these days, it is in something of decline. But you can still visit Christian Science Reading Rooms in many towns, and there's one not far from here up the road at King's Cross. Christian Science originated in the States in the late 19th century, when a woman called Mary Baker Eddy published the book Science and Health, in which she argued that sickness is an illusion that can be corrected by prayer alone. So Mary Baker Eddy described Christian science as a return to what she referred to as primitive Christianity and its lost element of healing. And whilst there are some, some kind of superficial similarities with the more mainstream Pentecostal traditions of praying for physical healing, I think there are also some significant differences. So Christian scientists believe that reality is purely spiritual and the material world is just an illusion, which means that for them, disease and disability are mental errors rather than physical disorders, and that the sick should be treated not by medicine, but by a form of prayer that seeks to correct the beliefs responsible for the illusion of ill health. Those of you who know your classical philosophy, or perhaps who have been watching The Good Place on Netflix, oh my goodness, I'm addicted, we'll recognize echoes here of Platonic dualism, which has dogged Christianity for the last 2,000 years, dividing our spiritual selves from our physical selves to no one's real benefit. Well, what Christian science boiled down to at a practical level for my grandfather was an argument over a tooth abscess. He was about 14 and he needed to go to the dentist because of the pain he was in. His mother refused and told him that he must devote himself instead to prayer for forgiveness for whatever spiritual sin it was that had crept into his life and was causing the painful illusion of toothache. Well, he was 14, and I think we can guess what thoughts had recently crept into his life that he might be concerned were sinful. Eventually, after six months of, as he put it, physical, sexual, and spiritual torment, his father relented and took him to the dentist to have the tooth removed. And quite reasonably, I think, my grandfather rejected religion at this point. I would have probably done the same, and I'm just grateful that I was brought up in a less abusive religious tradition. So, my first point. I do not believe that sin causes sickness or disability. However, you could be forgiven, so to speak, for thinking that Jesus did, on the basis of our first reading this morning from Mark's Gospel. I remember learning this story in Sunday school, colouring in drawings of a man being lowered down by his friends through the, I was told, you know, roofs in that region at that point were flat and you could take the top off. Some of you will have had similar Sunday school lessons having his sins forgiven by Jesus, and then standing up and taking up his mat, that's always very important, and, and walking out. I remember being taught lessons about the power of friendship, the importance of forgiveness, and how the unfortunate man could never have got to Jesus on his own. But I don't remember anyone ever addressing the question of what was going on here in terms of the link between forgiveness and physical healing. Which brings me to the second thing I don't believe. I don't believe we should set up expectations of physical healing for those who come to church or to Jesus. 
Another story. About a year ago, when I was on sabbatical, I attended church with a friend. Uh, it was one of those places where you sing enthusiastically for 40 minutes, and then you have a 40-minute sermon. In my notes, I've written that in inverted commas. Then you have a 40-minute sermon, and then you sing again for another half an hour, whilst people pray for those who come forwards for ministry. Well, the preacher had been speaking about healing and how God wants to heal everyone of whatever is wrong with them. The sermon then went what I can only describe as slightly off-piste and said that God specifically wanted to bring physical wholeness to those who had had injuries and operations that had left them with metal in their bodies, pins, plates, and so on, because these are unnatural and need removing. The preacher claims to have been present at a healing gathering where he had seen people experience the miraculous removal of metal from their bodies. The prayer at the end, the prayer ministry at the end, was an invitation for those who had such metal to come forward and receive prayer for its removal. Now, at one level, this is laughable nonsense. But we should note that this was a well-attended, mainstream church with an educated and intelligent congregation some of whom went up at the end for prayer for healing. I'm afraid my mind started wondering what would happen if someone with an artificial hip or heart valve went up and it suddenly vanished. Anyway, the serious point that I want to make is that this is abusive religion because it sets people up for failure. If, as my grandfather discovered, you faithfully yearn and pray for healing that doesn't happen, there is a good chance that you will feel very let down by God and by God's people. So I don't believe that we should set up expectations of physical healing for those who come to church or to Jesus. In the light of which, what are we to make of the paralyzed man, lowered through the roof, who receives forgiveness for his sins and healing for his paralysis? Well, the golden rule for biblical studies is first always consider the context. And we need to remember that Jesus lived in a world where people didn't have access to a scientific understanding of disease or disability. They didn't understand genetics or the processes of heritability. They didn't understand about bacterial infections and viral transmission and that kind of thing. So in one way, as 21st century readers of this ancient story of Jesus, we're at a profound advantage in terms of our understanding of the mechanisms of disease and disability. However, there is an area where I think the first century Jewish worldview was way ahead of us. I mentioned earlier the influence of Platonic dualism on Christianity, of how it invites us to divide the physical from the spiritual, to see the body as a cradle for the soul, or the mind as the master over matter. Well, here's the thing. This dualism, this separation of body and spirit, was alien to the Hebrew mindset. It creeps in through the influence of Greek thought later in the Christian tradition. To read Jesus as healing the man's paralysis through the mechanism of forgiving his sins is to impose a dualistic perspective on actions that are not dualistic, but holistic. Jesus wasn't enacting a kind of early Christian science approach where the physical ailment 
was mechanistically resolved by addressing the spiritual sin. Rather, he looked at the man and saw him as a holistic being, mind, body, soul in unity, rather than in division. And Jesus recognized that the man on the mat, as with all of us, had multidimensional needs. To have simply healed his paralysis with a wave of the hand would have only been to do half the job. This man needed wholeness in every area of his life, from the physical to the spiritual to the relational. And in publicly forgiving him of his sins, Jesus was acting decisively to restore the man to right relations with his society by healing not just his body, but his relationships too. I think there's an important key here for us in the words of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus instructs his disciples to pray, as we just have, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The scribes might have accused Jesus of blasphemy for daring to offer the forgiveness of sins. But in their anger, they missed the point of his doing so, which was that forgiveness that starts with God to the individual finds its fulfillment in the forgiveness that restores people to right relations with each other. This, then, is the context in which the man takes up his bed and walks. He had been healed holistically rather than just physically. It is forgiveness and restoration that creates the environment for his enabling. In terms of what we might take from this, for our own understanding of forgiveness and healing and prayer, there are a couple of points I'd like to draw out. Firstly, I think Jesus was enacting here something akin to what we might call today the social model of disability. This is a way of viewing the world developed by disabled people, and in a nutshell, it says that people are disabled by barriers in society, not by their personal impairment or physical difference. So, for example, a person whose legs don't work is disabled not by their impairment, but by the physical barriers in the world which prevent them from getting around. If they have access to a wheelchair, suitable ramps, lifts and toilets, they still have the impairment of non-functioning legs, but that impairment doesn't disable them. This means that the healing of the disability is something that is responsibility of the community around them, rather than just their responsibility before God. In other words, the healing, the, the enablement of the disability is social not personal. Scope, the disability equality charity, says, I'm just going to read a little bit from something they say, barriers can be physical, like buildings not having accessible toilets, or they can be caused by people's attitude to difference, like assuming disabled people can't do certain things. The social model helps us recognize barriers that make life harder for disabled people. Removing these barriers creates equality and offers disabled people more independence, choice, and control. Now, I am aware that not all people who live with a disability find the social model helpful, and that there are other ways of framing the dialogue between society and impairment. However, when I look at the story of Jesus encountering the paralyzed man in Mark's Gospel, 
I think it is very profound that Jesus does not simply resolve the man's physical impairment, but rather starts with a holistic approach which restores the man to right relationship with God and with others, creating the context within which his disability can be addressed. We need to keep remembering that the world of the first century was very different to ours, particularly on attitudes towards disability and infirmity and illness. So a paralyzed man, such as the chap we're reading about here, would have been an outcast in his society. People would have muttered, as they did elsewhere in the Gospels about the man born blind, you know, whose sin was it that caused this man's paralysis? Was it his or his parents'? He would have been unable to work, he would have been judged as sinful, prevented from accessing the temple or the synagogue for worship, quite possibly ostracized from his family. And I think there is something profound we can learn from Jesus' encounter with this man, which addressed first his relationship to God and the society in which he lived as a prerequisite to addressing his disability. I think that if, as a church, we are to talk meaningfully about healing in a way that is helpful and non-abusive, we have to stop fixating on the part of the story where the man picks up his mat and walks off. Now, I'm not going to get into a big discussion about, yes, but did it happen? Because I don't think that's the point of the story. The point, as Mark tells it, very clearly, is not that Jesus can heal, but that Jesus can forgive sins. This is the crucial aspect we need to grasp here. Jesus is bringing into being a new world where the old rules of sin and suffering are torn up. The scribes, as always in Mark's Gospel, are locked into their worldview of mechanistic religion, declaring Jesus a blasphemer for doing what they say only God should do. And consequently, the scribes carry on declaring the man still unforgiven, whilst completely missing the point entirely that Jesus is bringing a new world into being where forgiveness and restored relationships are now available to everyone, whatever their ability or disability or cleanness or uncleanness. Jesus is inaugurating a new community based on inclusion rather than exclusion. Last week, I argued that Mark's story of Jesus healing of the man with the skin condition was less about the condition itself and more about reversing the exclusion he suffered at the hands of a society that had declared him unclean. Well, this week, the story of the man let down through the roof on his mat is told by Mark as another example of this new world where everyone has access to the forgiveness and restoration that Jesus is offering. That which has previously been declared unclean is now clean. That which has previously been unforgivable is now declared forgiven. Outsiders become insiders, and those who were once the guardians of the border between in and out find their power to exclude torn away from them. And they start to get upset. So one of the implications of this new world that Jesus is bringing into being here is that it, it affects the way we understand forgiveness. Too often, churches have focused 
on eliciting personal forgiveness for personal sins, a bit like my poor grandfather being told to seek forgiveness for being a teenager. Dare I say that this is not what Jesus has in mind when he talks about forgiveness. It certainly isn't the whole story of what he offers when he pronounces forgiveness. This isn't about me being forgiven for a naughty thought I had. Rather, what Jesus has in mind here is the creation of a new humanity, of right and restored relationships, where forgiveness is both given and received by those who are part of it, as the natural outworking of the forgiveness that each of us receives from God. And it is this new community of restored relationships where I am forgiven to you and you are forgiven to me and we are forgiven to one another because we are all forgiven under God. It is this new community that creates the context for holistic healing to occur. It's through the transformation of community and relationships that disability is removed. And those church traditions which have overly fixated on personal morality and individual salvation miss this communal aspect, as do those church traditions which have fixated on prayer for physical healing. Both are unhelpful ends of this scale. Simply telling individuals they must repent of their personal sins to be acceptable to God and God's people is a distortion of the forgiveness that should be shaping us together into communities of love, restoration, transformation, and wholeness. And simply telling people who are sick or ill or disabled that they should receive prayer to be healed is, again, completely missing the point that it is all about the community that creates the context for healing. Still, the scribes, ancient and modern, don't get it. They can't see the benefit of this new world that Jesus is inaugurating, this new kingdom, as Mark calls it, which is as different from the old way of doing things as day is from the night. And so the scribes oppose it. They challenge Jesus and those who follow after him whenever we proclaim the radical, communal, universal, transformative healing power of forgiveness. Our journey through Mark's gospel this year has already given us glimpses of the disruptive nature of who Jesus is and what he does. A couple of weeks ago, we started at his baptism in the River Jordan. And if you know that story, the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven declares him to be God's son. And this language of the heavens being torn apart, ripped apart, is echoed in the two little parables that we heard towards the end of our reading this morning about new wine in old wineskins and new cloth on old cloth. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear, a rip, is made. And the word tear here is the same word Mark used to describe the heavens being torn open at the baptism of Jesus. And the lesson here is the same as it was at the baptism, which is that Jesus is disruptive of the way things are. He is doing something new which is incompatible with what was. And the world of the skeptical scribes, built on boundaries and rules and on exclusion and on power, is coming to an end. Similarly, Jesus says, the new wine of the kingdom of God will burst any old wineskin that tries to contain it, tearing it apart. 
religious systems built on definitions of who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's unclean, who's forgiven and who's unforgiven, are incompatible with the radical grace of the kingdom of God that breaks into the world in the life and ministry of Jesus. And any church that seeks to define itself by putting a boundary around itself to exclude people on some characteristic or basis, declaring them unclean, is a community which disables those it excludes. Well, the scribes had actually lost the argument by this point because of their system of mechanistic religion that could no longer contain God. The scribal way of doing religion was being burst apart here, ripped apart, torn apart. And the people at this point rejoice because here was God coming to them in Jesus to offer them forgiveness, to rebuild society and transform their relationships, to bring healing and wholeness to those who had otherwise been cast aside. And this is the gospel we've inherited. Churches have a depressing tendency towards institutionalism. We become scribes and we write things down and we define God with ever more constricted formulations. And the spirit of Jesus is always working to tear that apart with acts of inclusion and mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing. Some of you will remember that last year, as part of our inclusive church series, my old friend from college, Glenn Graham, came and preached here on disability inclusion. Uh, Glenn is blind from birth, and interestingly doesn't describe himself as being particularly disabled. I remember Glenn once saying to me, look, I've got two degrees, one in politics, one in theology. I can speak multiple languages. I travel independently. I'm married and I have a professional job. Exactly in what way am I disabled? But he is impaired. He is sightless from birth. And there are some areas of life, clearly, in which he is disabled still. He says, we must include everybody. There is no opt-out clause because we are being shaped into the likeness of Christ's body. So we are the body of Christ. And we embrace those in the body of Christ who bring all sorts of personalities and characteristics and impairments. And that makes us the community of Christ. We are the, king, the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed as coming into being. So we can and should be the place where this new society that Jesus envisaged starts to take shape. We should not be learning from the world here. We should be at the forefront of this, inviting the world to participate in the gospel of Christ, which is good news for all people. So we are those who can proclaim forgiveness to one another, even as we are forgiven by God and for others. I think our society has a crisis of forgiveness. I think people do not know that they are forgiven, that they can be forgiven. People carry guilt and shame in so many areas of their lives. We are those who can model healing and forgiveness. 
where no impairment or characteristic is exclusionary or unclean. This is why it matters so much that we as God's people in this place take seriously what it means to see others brought to healing and wholeness. This is why we continue to offer our persistent challenge to a world hell-bent on scapegoating and violence and exclusion. This is why it matters that we take seriously our commitment to making our church accessible to all. And yes, in some ways this will be the physical adaptation of the building. But in other ways, it's about how we structure ourselves communally, and it's about how we embody the relationships we have with one another. That quote from Scope about the social model recognized that the barriers to enablement are not always physical. Many of them are about attitudes and relationships. This is why it matters that we work with others from different faith traditions and none to bring healing and transformation to society. I think this is why it matters that we get involved in things like London Citizens, bringing a persistent challenge to a society that it could be different and it could be better. See, if we are to be the people of Christ, putting a wall around ourselves so we know who's in and who's out and then standing on the inside of that wall and feeling good about ourselves is not the deal, I'm afraid. If we are to be the people of Christ, our mandate, our manifesto, is to tear, to rip at the fabric of any society or institution that tries to contain and constrain the kingdom of Christ and the good news that that brings for all people. Anything that is exclusionary needs to be challenged. And this is because we are ourselves declared by Jesus to be absolutely forgiven. I'm just going to say this to you because maybe you don't hear it often enough. Whatever it is you're carrying, whatever guilt you have, whatever shame you hide in your heart, you are forgiven. That does not keep you from Christ or Christ's people. And so we know what it is to be declared unconditionally clean. And therefore, we know what it is to be part of a community of healing and restoration and wholeness. This is us. This is the gospel of Christ. You are clean. You are forgiven. We are forgiven. And together, we create the context where enablement and healing take place. Let us pray. Great God of all light, life and love, we come now to pray for a world where love is so often lacking, where so many people live in darkness and where life is not experienced in all its fullness. We pray for those places where your activity can clearly be seen. We pray this day for our families, and we rejoice that good and loving parenting is a reflection of your great love for all your children. Be with those who are parents, and may they know the joy of seeing their children grow into independence and maturity. We lift up before you especially those children who live with violent, abusive or inadequate parenting. 
and we pray for all those entrusted with ensuring the safeguarding of the young and vulnerable in our society. We pray for all those who this past week have celebrated love through entering into married life. We rejoice that love, faithfulness and commitment are gifts from you. And we give thanks for those who exp whose experience of love is one of equality and mutuality. We are grateful for those moments in our own lives where we have been especially conscious of your presence this week. Help us to see your love at work in our lives. We pray for those who are blind to your great love. We think of those who struggle to comprehend anything positive in their experience of life. For those who live with mental illness, depression and anger. And for those who find that their inner eye remains closed to the goodness of creation despite desperate desires to find a path to the light. Reach out your healing hands to those who live under the shadow of despair and give the gift of hope that comes through Christ. We pray also for those who see you as a negative, violent and vengeful God rather than as a God of light, life and love. We think of those whose own experiences of negativity in their family life has shaped for them a negative vision of you. We pray for those who are forever trying to please an implacable and unforgiving God. For those who live with guilt and hurt and find no forgiveness and healing when they pray. For those who live in fear and not in love. Great God of love, open their eyes to you as the source of eternal love and peace and come to them through your son to speak words of life bringing healing and wholeness and restoration of relationships we pray for those places where you are active but we cannot see it we know that sometimes it can be hard to discern the shape of your kingdom in our world when we think of those places torn apart by war, famine and natural disaster, we struggle to comprehend how it can be that you are a God of love. Lord, we pray for those who live in the midst of such situations. And we ask that they will be especially conscious of you with them in the midst of their suffering. Great God of the cross be with those who are in agony. And may it be true for them that the life that you bring can redeem even the horrors of death. We pray for those places where you are active, but people deny or oppose your activity. We pray for those who are wedded to ideas that seem unshakable until they're shaken by you. We pray for those who claim your name to promote restrictive dogma and oppressive religion. We pray for those of all faiths and none who deny your great love through their words, actions and deeds. Great God of all creation, we rejoice that you are not restricted by creed or confession. And we know that you can open a path to the light of your love, even into the darkest corners of the human heart.
We pray for those who run from the light because they have become bound to deeds of darkness. Come, Lord Jesus, bring light to our world. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us to wholeness and restoration. And may our eyes be opened to your kingdom, breaking in upon the world. Amen.